Hi, listeners. We want to tell you about some upcoming live events where you can join Kate and I. We're excited to announce that our upcoming Tend Her 3.0 program is happening. This is our third year in a row where we've received a grant that allows us to offer this program for free for up to 1,000 women. Our theme this year is resilience. We've realized these fast moving times that are filled with lots of complexity require resilience. So in this four week online program, we're gonna be learning the science of resiliency, as well as all the tools that we need to strengthen our resiliency muscle. Registration for this opens October 4, and the program starts October 23. In addition, we are so excited to announce that this year we're adding to the Tender program an in-person Women's Resiliency Summit on Friday, November 17th from 9 to 4 p.m. It's going to be held at Little Lights on the Lane. Registration for this event will open October 23rd, the first day of the Tend Her 3.0 program. If you want to be first to know, follow us on Instagram at Kate Moreland Coaching, at Dr. Yoga Mama, and at Tend Her Wild. Last but certainly not least, consider joining Kate and I for a full live and in-person week of rewilding in the wilds of Costa Rica on yoga and meditation retreat, May 11th to the 18th this coming 2024. Space is limited, but for more information on this event and how to register, go to www.oneyogaglobal.com. That's O-N-E, yogaglobal.com. Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Hello, Tender Wild podcast listeners. We are thrilled to have a very special guest with us today. Dr. Arielle Schwartz is a clinical psychologist, an internationally sought out teacher, and a leading voice in the healing of trauma. She is a leading voice in the field of trauma recovery and the author of seven books, including the Complex PTSD Workbook, the Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook, and Applied Polyvagal Theory in Yoga. As the founder of the Center for Resilience-Informed Therapy, she offers a mind-body approach to therapy for trauma and informational mental health and wellness updates through a writing, public speaking, social media presence, and blog. She believes that the journey of trauma recovery is an awakening of the spiritual heart, which I resonate with so deeply. So thank you so much, Arielle, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be with you both. Yeah, it feels really nice already. Ariel, we are thrilled to have you. And we always like to start our guests uh, off with a question that will take you back a little bit, but we'll probably give our listeners um, a good perspective of, of where you've been and kind of what has led you here. So we like to start with asking you about your first 10 years. Um, we ask these of, this of our guests because we feel like there's always this common thread that you can circle back to and kind of see how people have evolved in those early experiences and how they really influence uh, the work people often end up doing and the impact and the gifts that um, they give the rest of the world. So would you be willing to share with our listeners uh, a little bit about your first 10 years? Yes, I'm happy to. How long of an answer do you want? <laughs> as long as you'd yeah. like. I know. It's that was a great answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's see. Um, first of all, I love the question. I'm very aligned with the question because as a psychologist, I think that when we really understand ourselves and of course the people that we work with in the context of that early development, it provides this depth of understanding of not only who we become, our gifts, what we share, but also um, really kind of being able to turn 
towards those wounds, those tendencies, those those tender spots, and and to learn how to have such deep compassion. And of course, that becomes a foundation for the compassion that we might bring to others. But that's more theoretical. My personal story is that, oh gosh, let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little bit raw in here, which I think is is welcome here. Yes. So when my um even just in in utero, in pregnancy, there was a lot of strife already already building between my parents. And in the first few years of life, that became increasingly so. I was deeply wanted, deeply loved, and at the same time was born to parents who couldn't fully love each other, and there was so much conflict between them. So their marriage blew up by the time I was two years old. And they, you know, they were living in different households by the time I was four. And when I think, of course, I don't have memory um, in the classical sense, but when I reflect or I, I, I turn towards my body, when I reflect upon the stories that I know or the, or the vague memories that I have from those first three, four years of my life, the primary memories of, or felt sense that I come up with is that there was really no regulation out there or very little or sparse or unpredictable regulation. And there was a lot of dysregulation and that I became my own self-regulator really early in terms of taking care or soothing my own nervous system, whether it was, you know, falling asleep or, or just being a really good little girl. And then, you know, as the, you know, kind of evolution of this journey continues, there was, um, after the divorce, two different households that I transitioned between. And one of those households was a place where I felt actually more regulated and grounded. This was at my mother's house. And I'm very deeply grateful for actually having a touchstone of what that began to feel like. And my stepfather came into our lives shortly after the divorce and he brought yoga into our household. Wow. And, um, and so I was introduced, I was brought to ashrams and and yoga practices. He taught my whole third grade class yoga for an entire oh, wow. year. Like it was, Yes, exactly. Exactly. Just like yoga wasn't at a time that yoga wasn't as popular as it is now. That's quite a, I just want to point that out because that's quite a rare, rare thing. Yes. Yeah. This was in, you know, about 1977 that I was going to these ashrams and learning to meditate and, you know, in the kids programs and all of these experiences. And so in the midst of this profound disruption um, and my own nervous system disorientation and dysregulation, I had these touchstones of what play felt like and ease felt like. And sometimes it was just standing, pretending to be a tree or roaring like a lion or, you know, the things that we get to play with in a yoga practice, being a mountain, feeling the foundation underneath me. And so I had a household where I really had increasing amounts of resource. And then I had another household that I went to every week where I felt really disconnected. I didn't feel a sense of belonging. I felt fearful. Um, I retreated. I developed coping mechanisms within that household of dissociating and retreating and withdrawing in just to survive. And that defined the next 10 years of basically straddling these two worlds in myself and in in my external environment. And it was in my, you know, at some point as a teenager, it was like yoga shmoga, like I let the whole thing go, right? Like, you know, it wasn't wasn't what I turned towards. And then in my late teens, I I really started to feel a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, depression, a lot of confusion, Um, some physical symptoms that were accompanying all of that. And in my late teens, early 20s, I returned to yoga. Now, of course, I've jumped past a a bit of the the first 10 years into, you know, how I how I then coped. And I'll pause the story there and, and come back to that. But it gives you a sense of that the early foundations, both the struggle and the resource. Yeah. I want to reflect just for a second as a former divorce attorney, um, I worked for years in family law and I often represented children in high conflict divorce work. And so 
your story, I, I am thinking about these home visits I used to do with kids and how their environments would be so different and how I would watch them have to adapt at young ages. Um, and it was so painful as their lawyer because there wasn't a lot I could do from my position other than hope that they were, you know, getting the clinical and psychological help they needed to to deal with that. But that's a real, that's a real thing for kids. And and so just thinking back to and hearing your story brings me back to some of those visits I observed. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I bet it does. And and I've certainly um, you know, I've certainly worked with so many uh children and also parents um uh who have gone through high conflict divorce. And I think the the challenge is the parent, of course, is the guilt. Like I had to leave to save myself, you know, and I see the consequence or I see where I can't protect my child. And um, I know that that certainly was what a lot of what my mother carried in in this arena. And for me, part of how it impacted my experience emotionally and and um, psychologically was that the the rhythm for me me was basically a um a four three rhythm and so I would be at my mother's house from Sunday night until Friday and then Friday I would transition to my father's house and I would be there through Sunday and the the experience for me was that and it's always hard for me to know exactly where to start the cycle but I'll start it on a Wednesday Wednesday was my ease day Wednesday was my I'm not making any transitions. I'm not recovering from transitions. Kind of Tuesday, Wednesday in there. Thursday, I started to feel anticipatory anxiety. Friday, that anxiety was out the roof. Friday night, I arrived and went into coping mechanism. By Sunday, I was dissociated. Monday, Tuesday were my recovery days where I came back and my mother received basically the, the emotional download of everything that I held together for the three days, it all comes pouring out. And then, you know, by Wednesday, I, I feel a little bit normal for a day. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's so fresh in your mind too. Like to being yeah. able to recall that feeling, yeah. you probably can go right back to that. Yeah. yeah. And that's after, you know, 40 years of therapy. <laughs> of work, yeah. And I'm so grateful yeah. for your raw and honest vulnerability because uh, I think this story is is fairly common in terms of divorce and transitions. And so clearly I'm making a jump, but I'm guessing this was part of what drew you into studying trauma and psychology. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it informed you and your path forward. And so um, I know you talk a lot about post-traumatic growth. There was clearly some gifts in this experience and you're helping so many people um, with this. And what I'm so grateful that you're here is, is to talk about trauma because that's such a used word right now in our culture. I think everyone went through some trauma in the pandemic, but sometimes I think originally we thought of trauma as like a, a big event, right? Like a, a, a massive ab abusive thing that happened or a big car accident. And so would you just help people understand trauma and that what we think wasn't a trauma because we survived it and we got through it, it was normal for us in childhood, actually has had a ripple effect on our psyche and our body and how we move through the world. I think this is such a huge conversation. It really is. I'm, I'm going to lean into the question for a moment with a little bit more personal story, and then I'll, I'll kind of jump back out into a, a broader response. You know, on the outside, both of my households looked fine. Mm. On the outside, they both, like I had shelter, food. Um, again, I was wanted, I was loved. And I, you know, I think what really made the difference for me, especially as someone with mm, a, a sensitive nervous system, and perhaps that sensitivity is also derived due to early trauma, but it also is, is part of my nature, is that I really needed a household that acknowledged the emotions that were present, made space for my own emotional congruence and, and authenticity. And so even on the outside, my father's household looked 
actually very normal, right? And normal, I'll put in, in you know, quotes as a broad range there, but, it, you know, it, it, no one would really know unless you were inside of the experience. And for me, the inside experience was I wasn't seen, I wasn't attuned to, there wasn't room for my emotional authenticity. I had to stuff that or pack that away. There was a profound disruption in a sense of um, belonging. I, I experienced um, a tremendous amount of criticism and being under the lens of that that kind of critical eye and um and a very high drive for performance that was overriding the experience of just being allowed to be myself and you know so again like what is trauma if we if we broaden this lens it's very much how an individual is experiencing our environment and how much of the environmental load that that's coming towards us or allostatic load if we think about that in terms of stress how much of that can i handle or process or digest or integrate into my overall sense of self and the you know for for me the allostatic load was overwhelming my processing capacity and that is in many ways the core definition of what we might call traumatic stress is that we have um we don't have that ability to process it it's overwhelming our sensory capacity and in some way or another we have to develop coping mechanisms to protect ourselves from that sensory overload it makes me think about at your mom's house, you could thrive. At your dad's house, you were in survival mode. It's like the, right. which is so much of what we talk about. How do we, how do we help um, ourselves get to a place where we can thrive instead of merely survive? And how trauma plays such a role in, in that. So it's an oversimplification, I understand, but it, that's what it makes me think of. Is you're in two different modes. <laughs> that's right. I was in two different modes, and the key to coming out of survival was always the attuned presence of the other, whether that was at my mother's house or eventually in, in adulthood, finding other really skilled people that could attune to, um, to my inner world and be really, really skilled listeners and also help me really track where things got stuck in my body. Yeah. And some of that occurred on my yoga mat. A lot of that occurs on my yoga mat. Yeah. When, when did you get back to yoga then? Yeah. Was it in your twenties? I'm interested. I'm curious in too. Like when did you, when did it finally land and this understanding of sort of what you've been through? Because again, on the outside, it looked fine. And again, I, I've heard that story so much in my clinical office as well. And that's what really, um, in some ways messes with people's minds and hearts is that it should be, it looks good. I should be grateful. I'm, I'm safe. I'm not getting hit. Right. Like, why am I, why am I not, um, coping well in my life. So right. yeah. When did it finally come that aha moment? And was it on the yoga mat? Um, of, <laughs> wow. I, <laughs> I'm processing trauma here. I'm going to kind of locate it in two, um, two experiences, both when I was 20 years old. Uh, one was a friend of mine who kind of dragged me by the hand and took me to a yoga class in college. And, um, and, the experience there, it wasn't immediately going into processing trauma. What I experienced was that when I got off my yoga mat, I felt like myself. I came home. Like those were the words. Oh, this is what it feels like to be me. And that was such a strong experience that I started to go back every week. And then I started to practice multiple times a week. And then I was like, I need to do this every day. And so I was going to say, by the time I was 21 across that year, in one year, I developed a daily practice and I've not got, I've not stopped. I'm, you know, I'm 50 years old now. I, I have not stopped in, uh, in 30 years. The other aha moment, which was maybe more of the emotional processing, uh, which of 
course, is ample times on my yoga mat as well. But this this one really stands out. I was also 20 years old. I was also in college. And a friend of mine suggested that I go take a workshop with folks that were coming up from um, the Body Mind Centering Institute, and they were leading a workshop. And I had no idea what I was about to walk into. And it was uh, done, I, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. So oh, just yeah. kind of locating the where here. And these folks came up from Northampton. In fact, I recently connected with the very same woman that came and taught this workshop. Wow. So wow. what a full circle moment. But they, they came up and they basically were leading us. Body Mind Centering is, um, is a model of work developed by a woman named Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen. And she's integrating developmental movements and um, an understanding of our body systems in a kind of series of movements that we can do that basically help open us up to our own somatic experience and reorganize ourselves, perhaps if some of those developmental wounds interfered with those movement sequences that help us develop an integral sense of self. All right, it sounds super complicated, but I'll I'll share just a little bit more. She's a about... dance professor, right? She's a dance yeah. professor, which I think is yeah. how the mind body kind of started in that dance world. Exactly. And this was being taught in our dance department at Oberlin. And I thought I was going to like a dance workshop. Right? <laughs> but instead, <laughs> what were we doing? Um, I have a background in dance as well, yeah. but but this was very different. What we were doing is we were laying on the ground and rocking from the feet and allowing the whole body to just receive this rocking motion. Or we were partnering with other people who would hold our head and rock our head from side to side in their hands. Or um, we would we were crawling on the ground. So it was like going back and revisiting really early what I'll call regulating movements and organizing movements that an infant and then a toddler does is they're developing a sense of self. So I was a senior in college. Uh, again, a little bit of a revealing story. I was dating a freshman and it was just a very casual thing, right? Yeah. And I came out of this workshop and I had like no desire prior to that to attach or to like deepen in some way. And I came out of this workshop and something loosened up inside mm -hmm. of my own ability to compartmentalize. And I was like, I need attachment. I want something <laughs> more. Well, he was like, bye-bye. <laughs> Too much. He wasn't at the workshop with you, was he? <laughs> no. He's not at the workshop with me. And it it really awakened me to the fact that I had needs. Mm. That I had pushed down attachment yes. needs. Um, I had longings. And, uh, you know, and I had successfully pushed those down because of my own abandonment wounds and my own, my own deep, deep uh, uh, feelings of not enoughness and too muchness and all that we can internalize. Yeah. But that is such a, and that's such a key time in our lives of coming into ourselves. And so to have that experience for you, your senior year, and I imagine was really set you on a, a whole different path a whole path exactly i mean you know it was all so painful right it's not yeah. like it's it's you know i'm telling a, a bit of a, a light funny story but the the depth of what i tapped into was profound grief and um and this recognition that that grief was in my heart and chest it was in my belly it was in my throat and that while I had opened something up that also awakened a longing, it also opened me up to the pain. You know, long story short, it set me on the trajectory, as you just named, of I want to understand why these things work, why yoga brings me back home, why working through the body touches off what I had, these emotions that I thought I had, you know, tucked away. And now I'm, now I'm, now they're right here at the surface. And so it eventually, by the time I was 23, I started graduate school studying somatic psychology. It's what brought me here to Boulder, Colorado and Naropa University has at the time, this was 1996, had one of the programs in the country where I could get a master's degree studying the mind-body connection. Mm. So I I have to say that um, 
you and I do very, very similar work, but it took me so much longer to get there. And so that's why I'm fascinated that you somehow right away knew the body was key. So I did traditional PhD program, very mind focused, right? And so it wasn't until I finished that and I was like, oh, the body is missing. They don't talk about the body. They tell us to stay away from the body. The body will get you in trouble. Some of these old, you know, ideas. And so um, it's so refreshing that they're there that you were able to get there very quick. You knew the body was, which I believe now it's the way in, right? If we're just working from the neck up, we're not really working efficiently or really truly helping someone. So tell us about what you believe, your sort of theory of the importance of the body in terms of healing mental health and in terms of healing trauma. Yeah. Um, a little bit of how I have arrived at the answer to this question is that after I attended Naropa um, and completed that program in 1999, I also still, even though I knew experientially and I had a lot of tools experientially to work with the body, I still came out with, with that deep question mm -hmm. of why is this working? So I went back to school. I got my doctorate in clinical psychology. I did my dissertation research on the integration of mind-body therapies into clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And in my research involved basically, um, you know, surveying hundreds of clinical psychologists about their interest in the use of mind-body therapies, and then also doing this really in-depth review of the literature as to why these practices are working and how they're working. So in terms of, you know, what I've concluded over now, you know, I, I completed that, that body of work about 15 years ago and have, and it's formed the basis of all of my work in the world and all that I teach. The, the conclusions um, are really about uh, the changes in our ability to respond to our emotions. It has a lot to do with that capacity to build what we call distress tolerance or affect tolerance, emotion tolerance, and to turn towards what we're feeling in body and in emotions in the most effective manner, which is a mind-body process. It's kind of catching the habitual thoughts that we might run into as we're feeling a sensation. Thoughts like, I, can ha I can't handle this, it's too much, um, I'm going to be overwhelmed. And slowing all of that down and building greater capacity to be with what it is that we're feeling. And Another layer of how we're creating positive change via the body is that we have these bottom-up mechanisms. And basically what that means is that we're changing the brain and changing mental state by changing our physiology. So when we change how we breathe, when we change our posture, when we're exploring rocking movements, as I spoke about before, we are um, connecting into the way that our bodies might be might have historically braced or continue to brace around stress and we're opening up more room for the breath we're opening up more capacity to sense and feel the groundedness of ourselves in in where we are located we're more connected downward literally toward the earth rather than up in our heads and the physiological changes help us access a deeper sense of ease or calm or what we might call regulation. And I'm gonna borrow a phrase here from um, a key teacher in uh, the polyvagal or applied polyvagal theory work. Um, and uh, her name is Deb Dana. And she speaks about how the stories that we tell ourselves follow the state. They're based upon the physiological state that we're living in. So if we're keyed up in anxiety, our mind is going to catch hold of that anxiety and more likely to run narrative that that's projecting that sense of fear into the past, present, future. If we're feeling shut down, collapsed, withdrawn, depressed, likewise, our mind will attach narratives to try and make sense of that and also will build predictions of the future based on that current felt sense. 
So if we have tools to change how we are feeling in the moment, we actually have more access, more cognitive flexibility to develop new meaning makings because in this moment, I feel safe or safe enough. I feel connected. I feel heard, understood, that sense of belonging, all of the elements that really cultivate a quality of ease. So the world is not as I, it is, but it's how we how we perceive based on our internal space is essentially what you're saying, right? Like what we're coming yes. with internally is then how we're taking in our world versus how the world maybe truly is. It makes, and it, you know, when you think about the rates of anxiety and depression and how they've gone up so much in the last few years or been unearthed by this collective trauma and the world is moving so fast and there's a lot of uncertainty, I feel like this understanding for people, and to your point, it's not easy to go inward. And I think that's where people get stuck. There's fear there. I can speak to that personally, having done a lot of you know, mind work and then moving into my body. And there was fear the first few times of like, do I want to go there? Cause I think intuitively we, we know that something's living there. Mm. Um, it's just having, you know, being brave enough to, to, and willing to experience it. Um, but that's the only way to move through it really fully. That's exactly right. There is a certain amount of courage that we need to cultivate to go towards the discomfort. And sometimes that courage is what we get garner inside of ourselves. And of course, there's courage that it's a little bit easier to, to gather that courage when someone is lending us theirs, in the sense that if we have someone else that says, I'm not afraid of the big emotions that might show up here, we go, oh, okay, like your mom, you know, maybe it's okay. Exactly. Right. right? Yeah. That, that was my mom. That was also, you know, some, some really key players, healers, therapists, in my life that were able to show up and be with me as I kind of quote unquote fell apart, right? And to recognize that the internalization that I had of being fearful of my own emotions or sensations was actually my, you know, what I internalized around when I had experiences of other people not being able to be present with me or relate to me, they were afraid. And, and as a result, I go, oh, this must be a scary thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that power of collective community too. I even think about yeah, your dance class, like, yeah, being the together. Community. Yeah. 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 It is what I love about teaching yoga is that um, when we come together, both you know, for me as a as a student practitioner, but also as a teacher, when when we have these group spaces, and to know that we are turning towards something that might feel a little bit scary or uncomfortable, but that that is welcome in the room, and that there's other people courageously doing that same inner work alongside us. Mm -hmm. It's been so interesting because since 2020, my yoga classes went online. I've actually kept them online because for a variety of reasons. One is that it blows my mind how effective it is that we still feel the sense of community, even via technology. Um, and that a lot of the students that I have are, are some are local, but some are coming in from Europe and Africa and South America. And it's been amazing to me now that it's this international community that's grown and truly a community because we gather together and we speak before class and after class and we've really, really woven um, our hearts in a sense. And there's this way in which now I'm practicing with other people, but I'm also on my own mat, being guided by someone who it keeps in, inviting me to welcome my emotions and to know that that is part of the practice. It's, it's one of the pieces that can be missing in some of our um, general yoga classes that we find out there is that the emotions get left out the door. Right. Or we're a little afraid to ex fully express them if we're right next to someone we don't know versus on the screen where no one's necessarily seeing us. Yeah. And I, I feel like even just the three of us talking, we're all in separate places today. You know, the energy of connection sort of goes beyond space and time. So it doesn't matter that we're in three different states right now. You can feel the the synergy, the energy. And I think that's 
one benefit that's come out of the pandemic is we know that now, you know, we can engage with people across the world and still feel that heart opening, still feel their energy. So it's beautiful. That's exactly right. And the other thing I was going to say, and and I feel the same way about what we're recording right now for, for the podcast is that, that returning then to, for example, the recording of my yoga classes, which are up on YouTube, people describe the same thing. It's like they can feel the connection that comes through even listening to the recording afterwards. Wow. Amazing. And that feels sort of like a mind-blowing thing too, that our energy goes forward and back and, and yeah, people can still feel it, even if it's, it's something that's been recorded a year ago. So so I, I want to take us in a slightly different direction because um, the reason we, or one of the, the foundational pieces of this podcast has been the wild woman archetype. And Kate and I have been very inspired by the women who run with the wolves book by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And we both had some personal experiences that sort of, uh, I think we, we were being tracked by this wild woman archetype and it was like, we want to come out into the world a little more. So We've been having these conversations with women about now is the time to rewild. Now is the time to return to our essence, to who we naturally are. But to do that, we often have to really bump out of a bunch of boxes we've been conditioned into. And so today with you here, this expert on trauma and PTSD, and um, I was thinking about how trauma definitely keeps people boxed in. And it's really, so I'm thinking of people listening to our podcast thinking, yeah, I want to get out of the boxes. Yeah, I want to move into my full essence. But if you're living living with a trauma history, sometimes that feels impossible because you can't think your way out of the box or you can't even will your way out of the box uh, because you're carrying this. And so could you speak to those people who are like, yes, I want to rewild. Yes, I want to be in my full essence. Yes, I want to live up to my fullest potential. And I'm not sure why I can't do that. Yes. I'm going to bring in um, a key word that I think becomes a transitional um, access point to that. And the key word is going to be play. Hmm. Because part of what we lose in trauma is access to our creativity and the freedom to play. And when we're accessing the state of play, we are accessing a really sweet turning towards our sympathetic nervous system within a context of enough safety to be able to mobilize ourselves toward the world. And and play lets us dance. I'm going to go back to that word, dance a little bit with the fear. Right. There's a, a classic quote from Fritz Perls that says that um, that fear is um, excitement without the breath. Fear is excitement without the breath. Likewise, the sympathetic nervous system fight flight is play without the breath, right? Or it's it's you know it's it's fear. You know it it needs to have breath in order for us to be able to transform that energy. So if you're feeling locked and frozen, what lets you start to explore and play doesn't mean that it doesn't, that it's not fierce, right? Like we actually get to play with our ferocity. One of my favorite practices on the yoga mat is lion's breath. Right. And that we can basically, yeah, you stick out your tongue, you cross yes, your eyes, you I make a sound, you make claws <laughs> with your fingers, right? You just, yeah. And it's so satisfying to give expression to what we had to suppress because the urge to bite or claw. Right. When we think about rewilding ourselves, it is in there. It's actually taking over that archetype and exaggerating it to free ourselves out of the box. Now, again, we might have the listener going, oh, gosh, that sounds terrifying. Right. Like make a sound. Mm -mm. 
And so we start small, right? With all of this, and if, if we haven't learned anything else from somatic psychology, we've learned about titration. It is about turning towards small amounts of that activation in the body, playing at the tolerable edge of that, and then backing up into the, the realm of, of safe enough and letting that um, experiment or that activation integrate through. Mm. Here's some ideas of play. Because I'm like, okay, adult, I can hear people because this is actually partly me. I, I'll be vulnerable right now. Like I don't play. I'm an adult and I have serious things that I have to take care of, right? You know, <laughs> Kate and I have this conversation, yeah. recovering type A perfectionist, good girls that, you know, did it all right. Um, can you give some ideas? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's so many ways that we can do this. I'll, I'll give two of my personal favorites. Um, and I'm going to start with time in nature because there is something, and especially if we walk out into nature without technology, or usually I bring my phone because I like to take pictures, but that's all it's used for. I don't look at it for anything else out there. Right. But, you know, but like that, there's some way in which if you're walking on a trail in nature, if you feel safe enough to do so, if you have access to that in your environment, and then you just start to observe the natural world around you, the way that the that the vine is curling itself around the branch of a tree, the way that the ant is crawling on the ground. It doesn't have to be some big dramatic exposure to like, you know, the bear or the lion in order to, right. to feel the wildness of what's around us. Um, you look small, look at the way that the stream makes its way over, over the rocks and carves its way, um, you know, across the um, the landscape, and then let yourself actually play just a little bit with embodying what you're observing in the natural world. Take the shape of that branch of the tree. Allow yourself to imagine moving like that stream. And what does that feel like in your body? If you feel comfortable, crawl on the ground, right? Like you can get really experimental with this in but find, even if you don't want to put your whole body in the ground, take it over with your hand. Let your hand imagine being that insect crawling on the ground. And then notice how your body responds to just that movement of your fingers walking um, like that little creature. I the second that. offering, yeah, right? It's so fun, yeah. right? Like you're, all of us are like, oh, I want to go on the outdoors now. The second <laughs> offering that I'll give is that in, in this, again, these are my personal practices, but when I get on the yoga mat, I love to experiment just a minute, you know, going back to being that seven-year-old in my third grade class, pretending to be the lion or the cobra or the tree or the mountain, right? That then we're bringing the nature into what I'll say is a rather controlled environment of your rectangle space of your yoga mat in hopefully a space where you feel safe enough to do some of those movements of, you know, sticking out your tongue, making a sound, crawling on the ground, moving like a cat, like a, a cow. Um, and imagine that you are a child being invited to play inside of this, to make it yours, to that, that again, yoga, unfortunately gets um, usurped by type A personalities too. And then <laughs> And yes. then the next thing now we want to perfect the posture. Yeah. So if we shift out of for that, 10 breaths without exactly. <laughs> like shift out of that mode and really sink into how does your body want to make the posture yours? I, I borrow phrases from Mary Oliver when I teach such as let the soft mm. animal of your body love what it loves yeah. or you know, move in this shape, just like you are your favorite animal, just waking up from a nap. I want to, I want to give a shout out to Betsy because as my yoga teacher, Betsy is so good at encouraging nonlinear movement, which for me during yoga is the most freeing time for me to experiment and to feel more playful um, so Betsy, I just want to say, I mean, I feel like the two of you are 
I think Arielle and I are, are, are our sisters <laughs> from another life that um, I know I do too. Yeah. <laughs> As I hear her talk, yeah. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And the nature piece, the nature piece for me is mine. There's no place I can be more mindful actually than in nature. So it also, if you're feeling stuck or anxious or depressed, I think nature is such a cure-all for so many things because it forces you to really just be in the moment. And um, there's just, there's so many lessons in nature. So I couldn't agree more. It's true. And and so often when we're in nature, I'm going to borrow actually kind of like two ideas set forth. One was by Carl Rogers, who, you know, started client-centered psychotherapy and and um this this understanding of that the depth of acceptance is part of how we heal. And he describes in his book on becoming a person this this sense of when we're watching a sunset, we just go out to deeply appreciate that sunset. We're not saying to ourselves, oh, wouldn't you put a little more pink over there, a little more orange over here? We're just in this awe and appreciation of, yeah. of what is as it is. Ramdas offers a very similar um phrase where you know, he says, can when we go out in nature and we look at a tree, we see the way that the tree has been shaped by its environment and and its gnarls and its and its asymmetries. Can we look at our fellow humans in the same way, of course, ourselves as well, in the same way that we appreciate how those trees have been shaped and the beauty of their uh, of, of their uniqueness? Ariel, one of the, I heard you talk about this on a, another podcast you had been on. I was listening this week. One of the themes we talk so much about is we have to all commit to doing this inner work, that this is how our planet starts to shift. And we've talked a lot about that quote by the Dalai Lama who says it's the Western woman who will uh, save the planet. And um, so could you also put your spin on this? Because clearly you've done so much inner work. You're really guiding so many people to do the inner work. Can you speak to the importance of this? Because it just seems like now more than ever, this time point in history, we all have to make this commitment to clear out our own inner spaces so the external spaces can also be more healed and balanced. Yeah. Um, you know, what we perhaps keep looping back around to is the quality of courage that it takes to turn towards what, what our inner work is. And everyone has their own inner work based on your history, your transgenerational history, what's been the legacy handed to you, um, uh, perhaps for many, many generations of the unprocessed trauma. And so when we look at the courage to go towards the emotions or the sensations or the pockets of tension or the the narratives um, that are related to trauma, our own or generational, that courage in itself is like a hero or a heroine's journey. And that we do need to really kind of garner our resources to carry with us so that we don't go in to face the dragon without our armor and our sword and our allies and everything that we need. And of course, metaphorically, that dragon is, is what we're carrying inside of us. Um, I also just want to speak a little bit to, to the way that trauma helps us become the healer. Because, you know, and, we, and, and this concept of even the wounded healer, and of course, we need to attend to our own wounds, we need to attend to our trauma so that we're not carrying that blindly into our work with others, if that's what we're doing. But many years ago, um, we were speaking about Clarissa Pinkola Estes and women who run with the wolves, and she came to Boulder um, and she was giving a lecture, which I attended, and she shared in the lecture that that image that we see in the uh, of the Kurundera uh, lineage of the heart with the swords piercing through the heart. We see a lot of this image in Latin American art and and spirituality, and that she was describing this image with the seven swords piercing the heart that was in flames, and. 
that this image represents the wounded healer and that when we allow ourselves to experience the heart that has been pierced by life, our grief, our loss, our tragedy, and that the courage that that takes, that that expands into the world heart, the heart that can become that which is capable of greeting another person's despair, greeting our own despair, courageously, powerfully, and is capable of that kind of transformational process that that allows us to also turn towards the brilliance of what um, we're capable of tapping into that potential that we can touch in this world. Mm. That is so you powerful. You love that answer, don't you? Kate is a big heart. Yes, person. I do. So I know she was speaking <laughs> I am a big directly heart to you. Yeah, so much courage in the heart uh, that can then shape the world. Well, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. And we always like to end our interviews with uh, this question, another question uh, based on the the book, uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves. You are certainly a wild woman, uh, Ariel, and yes, and how you are- Radiates off of her, um, I think. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, But we want to ask you, you know, there are a few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. So which door do you think you walked through? Uh, at that point, maybe in your 20s. Um, If you have a deep scar, that is your door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it, that is a door. And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which one, or maybe there's more than one, that really resonates with you? Oh, I don't know if you could see the resonance as soon as you said it. Um, I just like the tears just welled up in my eyes. And um, it was actually door number three. Um, it's, It's the door of the amount of love that I feel for this natural world that we share. I mean, it overwhelms me. And it's why I have to be out there every single day. And it brings me to tears again and again. That And I, I remember touching. And it doesn't mean that the other doors aren't true for me too. Obviously in my story, they're all there. But I remember the first few times that I touched that one was watching the moon set, sitting with my father in the car. He was bringing me back from his house. And those precious times where I had some one-on-one time with him were actually really, really extraordinary. And we were we we decided to stop at the beach because it was just this beautiful moonset. I grew up in New York on Long Island, so it was very easy to get to, from one shore to another. Yeah. And we just sat there and watched this crescent moon set over um over the water. And the experience of pure awe and yearning that leapt out of my heart of whatever that is. Wow. And um, and I think that, you know, I mean, other other elements to this is just that the way that nature bridges something mm-hmm. for me and maybe for all of us collectively, um, it's right there. Oh, so, so beautiful. You live in one of the most beautiful, I believe, places, uh, those beautiful yeah. mountains, uh, which I'm sure speak to you. Well, and the photography that you do too, yeah. you, you ca- capture that for others. So I love that. Where can people, yeah, I was going to say, I love that idea of her going out with her phone to take pictures, but not looking at text or any incoming calls. I'm like, that is my new hiking idea yes. now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The photos of nature, you've just, you both just named it, but the photos of nature for me are a way that I do my gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps me kind of take a snapshot as I was just thinking this last night I I went for a walk first and then I came back home and I did my afternoon meditation and or evening meditation and I and I had seen a great blue heron sitting on the branch of a tree last night and I took two pictures of it because it was so beautiful it looked like it was standing on stilts it was just a cool bird and 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 when I closed my eyes to sit in meditation the first thing that I saw was the image of 
the the great blue heron. It was actually the image even from my photograph that I had taken. And I thought, oh, this is really why I do those practices is it's a way to anchor, strengthen, linger, savor those moments and go back. It's so easy to review them again. Oh, there's so much power in that. Well, where can people find more about you, uh, Ariel? We'd love to share with our listeners where they can find you, your yoga, your wisdom. Where can we find you? Thanks. So um, my website is drarielschwartz.com, drarielschwartz.com. My um, YouTube channel is simply Dr. Ariel Schwartz. So easy to find that. You'll find yoga videos, some of which are taken out in uh, beautiful wild places. Um, there's one of them that I keep thinking about in our interview today. Look for the yoga class called Rewilding. I think uh, oh. the two of you will know that one. <laughs> I, I found it. I actually you did? found that. The, yeah. I found it. Yes. Put it in the yes, show notes. I saw so that one. You can just about... find it directly. Good. Yes, good. We will. And then um, on Instagram, if you find me at Ariel Schwartz Boulder, you will find all of my nature photos and poems. And then at um, Facebook, it's Dr. Ariel Schwartz. Beautiful. And I think that you are doing an upcoming retreat in Africa. I am. I'm going to be (gasps) in South Africa. I will. It's so fitting with what we're speaking about here. We are going to... Um, the Limpopo province of South Africa, and um, we will be in Kruger National Park and in wildlife reserves and at an elephant orphanage. It's a nine day, it's called the Beyond Trauma Retreat. It's a program that I um, that's based on the post-traumatic growth guidebook. Um, I just taught this program earlier this year in North Carolina. Um, it was stunning. The feedback that I get from it is amazing. And basically the South Africa program is that we combine learning how to engage in your own hero or heroine's journey with with your own trauma history by changing mindset, by working with somatic practices, by doing some gentle yoga. And we combine this every day with safari. Stunning. Yeah, you want to come with me? Sign, come sign, with me. Sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. I'm actually thinking, I'm like, I could use a retreat. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Are there still spots? There are, but they're limited. We, okay. we, we're about a third of the way full already. So okay. sign up fast. That's okay. Amazing. And we'll share it with all of our yeah. listeners too. Thank you so much for everything today. It was absolutely a delight. And I learned so much from you. And I'm just, I'm honored to have gotten to meet you and and spend some time with you. So thank you. Yeah, agreed. And we hope to stay connected to your beautiful work and to continue to uh, bring people to this work because it's so important right now. Well, thank you both. What, what a pleasure to be with you. Hello, listeners. We want to let you know that we have so much gratitude that you join us in these conversations every week. We want to continue to uplift and connect with women-owned businesses and businesses that are supporting women. So if you are one of those or have a recommendation for someone that may want to sponsor an episode, please have them reach out at tendherwild.com. If you are needing a reprieve from the fast pace of our modern life and want to connect a little deeper to yourself, I would love to see you at my next retreat, which happens to be in the Cork countryside of Ireland this September 24th through the 30th. You can join Kate, myself, and Kimberly at this retreat. And it's falling at a very auspicious time because we will just move through the fall equinox and we're moving to days that are shorter. So this is the perfect time of year to begin to draw inward, to slow down, and to really drink in the beauty which will be rampant in Ireland in the fall uh, to sort of support you and nurture you over the winter months. If you are curious about this retreat, you can check out more and how to register for this. We have, I believe, just a couple spots left uh, in the show notes. I can't wait. I can't either. Today's episode is sponsored by Kate Moreland Coaching and Heartland Yoga. As a coach, I am an advocate for authenticity and well-being for individuals, organizations, and communities. Through my coaching work, I like to help you connect to your authenticity, whether you're an individual, a leader, 
or an organization, your creative power lies in your authenticity. Doing the work to understand your strengths and acknowledge the patterns and rocks that are in your way is the path to well-being. Whether it's your career or your relationship with yourself or others, transformative change begins within. You can reach me at katemorlandcoaching.com. Heartland Yoga has been in business for nearly 15 years. I founded this studio with the intention for it to be a safe place where people could come and heal. I also knew that I wanted a business that fostered community and connection. So if you are looking to deepen your yoga practice, heal from physical, emotional, mental wounds, or simply connect with people who are like-minded, Heartland Yoga is a place that we would love to welcome you into, whether it's online or in person. You can find out more information at www.heartlandyoga.com. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week.